Those of us that were lucky enough to be born in the state of Kentucky like to believe that the spirit of the United States is corn whiskey, aged in New Oak here in the Bluegrass region. It's almost a sense of superiority when relating to the rest of the whiskey landscape. There are two realities that sort of crash around our ears when we start evaluating that. The first thing is that rye likely was the original spirit made here in the United States. As the masses immigrated here, they brought with them the knowledge of distilling. Largely founded in the ideas of scotch or Irish whiskey, distilling would take off, but the bulk of the barley at the time was going to be used for beer. It is a much faster and simpler process, and barley of the time was poorly adapted to the climate and soil types of colonial America. Rye, however, was readily adaptable to the colonial states, and the conversion of corn to whiskey wouldn't occur until you got much closer to the Mason-Dixon line, which didn't even exist yet. And that's only one of the problems in calling bourbon the native spirit of the United States. There's a second problem. If we believe that Elijah Craig is the father of bourbon, we have to note something that's actually a little painful for a native Kentuckian like me. When the fabled Elijah Craig would have been making bourbon, Kentucky wasn't even a state. It was just another county in Virginia. So with the birth of bourbon arguably being during a time when Kentucky didn't exist, is bourbon whiskey the native spirit of Virginia? That's almost blasphemy. Corn and rye whiskey could be considered inventions of the United States. Both can lay a solid claim to being a native spirit. But what does the entirely new creation embody? But does an entirely new creation embody the founding principles of the United States? Today, we explore the possibility that neither corn or rye whiskey embody the principles of this nation. From an early age, we are taught that this country is the melting pot of cultures from around the world. Disregarding our own personal politics, we can clearly see the fingerprints of multiculturalism covering food, music, and the art of this nation. What may feel like appropriation can become an act of unity. What does that have to do with whiskey? Personally, I believe there are two specific markets that are the next big boom in the spirits industry in the United States. One is craft whiskey, and we'll talk more about that at a later time. This week, I want to talk about American single malt whiskey. It's pretty well known that scotch is probably the biggest single spirit market in the world, and the creation of American single malt whiskey might seem like an effort to capture that market. But to me, it speaks of a want to take the cultures of our European friends and merge it with some more regional influences to create a new segment in the market. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies and decide if the truthiness even matters. What exactly is American single malt whiskey and what should it taste like? While there isn't a legal definition of American single malt yet, there is some general agreement that it should be produced from 100% malted barley at a single distillery in the United States of America. There's nothing to prevent anyone from slapping the name on their label and moving on, so maybe it pays to start with a group like the American Single Malt Whiskey Commission. The effort of this commission is to first create an agreement in the market as to what the definition of the spirit should be, and second, 
securing a standard of identity for American single malt whiskey. As the effort moves towards the Alcohol and Tobacco Tax and Trade Bureau, or TTB for the whiskey aficionados listening, there were a couple of additions. Mirroring our friends from the o- Mirroring our friends from across the ocean, there's a maximum distillation proof of 160 and a minimum bottle proof of 80. While we can take those standards from Scotland and the idea of aging whiskey in the United States for 20 plus years is borderline unacceptable, partially because there's not a glut of 15-year product on the market already to satiate the appetite of the consumer, but more importantly, climate for the bulk of this nation is drastically different than that of Scotland. Aging happens in a completely different fashion. Why hasn't American single malt whiskey been a thing until now? Barley is expensive to grow. Barley is hard to grow. Those two things combined make it less than attractive to a farmer to grow and combine the fact that virtually all whiskey makers in the United States consume a pretty hefty quantity of barley to help access the sugars that are needed in the fermentation process of rye and or bourbon. It's not really surprising that you find the first regions to jump into the American single malt whiskey are west of the Mississippi. It's probably out of a need to create their own identity in the whiskey marketplace, but Oregon, California, and Colorado can all claim to be early entrants into this segment. When I began looking into American single malt months ago, I kept coming across this same tall yellow bottle. Over and over again, it kept jumping to the top of my search history. As I often do, I found articles, podcasts, and spirits reviews in abundance. As I listened to the interviews and discussions around the spirit, I kept hearing about this grassroots effort to build a brand and a following. Since 2004, this distillery has been producing a small batch whiskey. It was originally bottled by hand using volunteer crews. Each group was brought in to help fill and label bottles, often including handwritten notes with the bottle and being paid in food and possibly even a taste of the spirit as they worked. It seems this particular operation happened to rise from the ashes of a tough situation. Strangers turned business partners were brought together by a barn fire that George Stranahan, the distillery's namesake, experienced, and Jess Graber, a volunteer firefighter that happened to respond to the fire, seemed to hit it off over a love of local brew. The distillery uses a mix of up to four different barleys grown regionally, Rocky Mountain Water, and a proprietary yeast strain to create their unique offering. The local climate and crops play a role in the flavor profile, but things that might help this to depart from its big brother scotch could be the combination of using a pot column still hybrid for the primary distillation and a second distillation in a smaller copper pot. Stranahan's focuses on using the community to help build the brand, volunteers to help produce the product, and a local base ingredient to help create terroir put a spin on a recipe that is much older than this country. That helps to put the fingerprints of American culture all over it. For their original offering, they use virgin charred American white oak barrels. A further departure from scotch using ex-bourbon barrels and age for four years. These These shorter ages are another point where the standards of identity can diverge slightly from scotch. First-use barrels combined with a different climate lead to incredibly different aging expectations. This whiskey, much like the next one, explores using a Solera finishing process. Few bourbons explore this idea, but at its center, the idea of Solera is fractional blending. At each blending, barrels are put into a vat to marry. As As the bottles are filled, the vat may not be completely emptied, and this becomes the base for the next blend. 
If you were to think about the difference between sweet and sour mash, this could be a similar process just on the other side of the whiskey aging equation. Another name that popped up pretty quickly in my search for notable American single malts is that of Jeff Quint from Cedar Ridge. Maybe it's because in the waning months of 2020, Iowa Alcoholic Beverage Division posted the accolade that Cedar Ridge had become the number one selling bourbon in the state. I guess that factoid only makes sense if you consider and understand that Cedar Ridge is a winery slash distillery located in Iowa and has been there since 2005. Over the course of 15 years, they've created such a solid brand that they were able to overcome the bourbon titans of the United States in their home market. Often craft distilleries are stood up without a sense of identity as an attempt to capture a portion of the whiskey boom in a more regional effort. Jeff Quint, however, identified that Iowa, as the leader in corn production in the United States, needed its own spirit. Exploring this further, the Quint family opened their first distillery in the state of Iowa since Prohibition and within a handful of years became nationally recognized as a top-shelf craft spirit. Not satisfied with that offering, they began to explore the category of American single malt whiskey, using two-row barley, a Solera system, and some of the wine barrels from the on-site winery as well. This seems to culminate with, with the namesake bottling called the Quintessential. It has to be the flagship bottling if you are willing to both put your name on it and also trademark the naming of it. Crafted with 100% pure malted barley, using two-row barley and peated barley, both are distilled individually. The peated barley distillate rests in American oak casks for four to five years, and the malted two-row barley is shifted to the same types of barrels for two to three years. After the initial aging, it's given a second aging process using rum, various fruit, and wine barrels for a secondary one to two year aging process. Then comes the Solera action. These barrels are dumped into the mother batch, which is a tank that contains some measure of the previous bottling batches. As they bottle off the tank, they have a set line where they will not drain below. This setback now includes this particular batch and any previous batch that has come through the tank over the years. If you aren't into scotch, you might be asking the question of, what is peated barley? As I mentioned earlier, malted barley is essential to the whiskey making process. And you get to malted barley by taking the barley seed, getting it moist, and leaving it in a warm location. The seed will begin to sprout, and at a certain point in the sprouting, you need to arrest the growth so you can access the benefits of the amylase. After the process has reached the end of your particular application, you now apply heat to it to halt the germination process. In Scotland, peat was used to create that heat. It initially was used because of its abundance within the region, but it eventually became a whiskey standard. I touched on this briefly when I talked about M.B. Rowland and their dark-fired corn offering. The last brand of the episode took this idea of malting and in a similar fashion tried to regionalize it. Around the same time that the Quints were beginning their distillery in Iowa, a thought was being formed in Arizona. Something that I feel is pretty standard for most people who spend any time in front of a grill barbecuing meat with a drink in a hand, an idea was wiggling around in a brain. Why couldn't barley be malted over a more regional heat source than peat? Peat is the identity of Scotland, and while we may be stealing their recipe and some of their methodologies, we should be able to put our own spin on it with our ingredients. Stephen Paul's grill front idea came to fruition as he explored how to make a scotch-style whiskey using mesquite wood. Using a 5-gallon still to perfect the whiskey, he and his wife created the foundations of a brand that is making waves in the Southwest. 
in 2011, a 40-gallon still enabled Hamilton Distillers to launch a litany of offerings known as Whiskey Del Bach. Growth can be contagious, and with the open arms of the Southwest, they shifted into a 500-gallon distillery in a malt house. Prior to this setup, they were using meat-style smokers to process batches of grain in the tens of pounds. Now they are using a malt house that can process in the thousands of pounds. Like the rest of the offerings in this particular episode, most of the work is done in-house using local ingredients. I honestly had no idea who this brand was until my friends over at Chill Filtered Podcast talked about it, and as fate would have it, I found a single barrel selection within one of the online groups we all find ourselves stalking. This side quest of any bourbon fan can feel a bit alien. The flavor profiles are reminiscent enough to give a slight feeling of comfort, but it's as if you've entered an alternate universe of the whiskeyscape. The growing popularity has caught the eye of other craft distillers seeing brands like Town & Branch entering with the single malt foray or even larger brands like Woodford Reserve. These feelers of other brands can seem as if they are identifying what I led with. The segment of American single malt whiskey has a great amount of potential within the spirits marketplace. I think if we think geographically rye whiskey, the true first whiskey of the United States, it's incredibly more popular in the regions where rye was traditionally being grown colder climates in the north or northeastern states. Corn whiskey, or bourbon more specifically, are really popular in the south, which happens to be some of the most fertile soils for corn crops. American single malt whiskey relies on barley and is popular in a completely different geography. It's hard not to relate American single malt whiskey back to bourbon because it's my original spirit of choice, but it seems like that this style is a great gateway to other spirits, more specifically understanding scotch. It also seems like an appropriate gateway to onboard a scotch drinker into bourbon. Given the constraints around the whiskey being more stringent than that of rye or bourbon, the artistry of American single malt whiskey becomes a labor of fermentation, aging, wood, grain, still type, but only still barley. Whatever the barley can do is only enhanced by the other options. For me, there seems to be an opportunity to be on the front end of the race to the top for American single malt whiskey. Imagine having a time machine that enables you to be able to buy Stitzel Weller whiskey fresh from the distillery. That's effectively where we are with this particular spirit. The final hook here is a call to action. Seek out distillers exploring this spirit category. Find ways to support them and grow this segment. Support the commission seeking to legally identify the requirement to be considered an American single malt whiskey and keep drinking. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure to subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable.